Hey, y'all. Welcome back to a New Year's episode of Well-Lit Path. In Psalm 32, David speaks of the blessings of God's grace. And I can't think of a better stop topic to start the new year with. But first, how was your December? Um, honestly, I've got a, a goofy smile on my face right now as I, I sit in the the home studio and record this episode. It's just so good being back with y'all to uh, once again kind of share in your week. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me into your lives every week, all of those that listen. Um, as I've said before, though, I, as we come into the new year, it's always on the heels of Christmas. And I do absolutely love Christmas. Uh, this year was no different. Uh, we spent some time together as family. We opened gifts to each other. I love the giving of Christmas. Uh, seeing my grandson's face light up at all of his presents as now at 18 months old, it, it really registers with him what they are. And he was just really happy and excited. And it, it, it's always a special time. But as the holiday glee subsides and our minds turn back to the normalcy of life, we, we, we do tend to be reminded of a new year around the corner. And I think this inevitably causes us to reflect on the previous year. Uh, I know for myself, like, have, have I done everything that I planned? Did I accomplish everything that I wanted to accomplish? And I also pause and think, uh, how rarely do we consider our spiritual growth when we think about these things? Have we grown spiritually this last year or have we remained stagnant? Have we ventured up the hill towards the Father or remained on a plateau? Have we moved further down the well-lit path or have we stopped over at one of those convenient rest areas only to find that we've been there all year? And while it is a little cliche, a new year is a great time for new beginnings. It's a time for maybe in our lives some planned intentional growth. A time to move beyond the passivity of our casual Bible reading into a deeper study of God's Word. You know, David in Psalm 32 is coming off of a huge failure in his life. Uh, while most of us can't say that we've ever been guilty of the same sins that David laments when he committed adultery and the subsequent murder in his affair with Bathsheba, we can say that we're all guilty of falling short, of failing God of sinning against the ever-perfect Jehovah on more than one occasion. You know, David spent an entire year uh, trying to cover up his sin. His conscience tormented him, and his guilt altered his physical health. And maybe in this last year, you found yourself battling or struggling with a myriad of sins, unwilling or seemingly unable to give them up, to bring them to God. Well, David has a message here for you in this psalm. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. 
I said, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Christian, blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven. Well, what's a transgression? It's a trespass, a rebellion. It's when we break a law, a command. While sin may be committed sometimes inadvertently, we're all born with sin corruption. Uh, Transgressions are the sins we commit knowing that it violates God's holy law. And we commit these daily. Over the course of 365 days, how many times have we transgressed against an almighty God? Uh, If we were to commit an average of, say, 100 sins a day, with with half of them being transgressionary sins, that would be 1,800, I'm sorry, 18,250 transgressions a year. And let's be honest with each other. I'm ballparking on the low side. And let's remember also that these aren't just sins we commit. These are the sins we think of committing. These are the thoughts that we don't hold captive and throw down at Christ's feet. When you look at it that way, the tally starts to add up. What number would that take us to? And now here's the blessing. As Christians, we've been forgiven. Every thought, every intent, every sin and transgression, they're under the blood. But as we hold on to them and refuse to give them to God, they pile up. They create a wall between us and the Father, and the fellowship is broken. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This has been my favorite verse of last year. Not that he needs to re-forgive me for every sin I've committed. Once paid and for all is the beauty of our salvation in Christ. But that he delivers on that promise of forgiveness with every new sin that we commit. He's faithful to his original promise of forgiveness and salvation that this sin is forgiven as well. While it's new to me and it's newly in need of acknowledgement or confession, it's not new to him. He needs me to acknowledge it so that he can begin to work it out of my life as I give it to him. So he can continue to create in me an image more like his son and less like me. I not only get to be his child, 
He wants to make me into the image of his only perfect son. God wants me to draw close to him. He condescends, brings himself down to my level so that he can bring me up to his. So great is his love for me. And how great the blessing for the man that is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Every sin covered under the blood of our Savior. His righteousness imputed to us instead of our iniquity. I, I love the word imputed. It means, it means reckoned. In salvation, the Lord God imputed to me or reckoned to my account the righteousness of Christ. And speaking of Abraham in Romans, the Bible says in Romans 4, verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his, Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, those are some hallelujah words right there. Imputed means put on our account. As born-again believers in Christ, our iniquity, our guilt of total depravity, is no longer a ledger entry on our spiritual account. It's been erased, and in its place, three words written in red, paid in full. His sacrifice applied to our account through our faith in him alone. Christ's righteousness has been entered into our ledger balance. No new debt can erase the payment. It merely falls on those words and dissipates into the blood with which those words were written, paid in full. And because of this imputation, while we can and will still sin and transgress against God, our spirit can no longer be found guilty. It's as if there were never any falsehood in us at all. So total the covering of the blood of Christ. And as we head into the new year, my prayer is that I lay hold of the mercy and grace bestowed on a sinner like me daily to understand better the miracle of how he forgave me and what it took to make that pardon real and mine. To let go of the things that break my fellowship with the Father, the things that make me miserable. David said the year he spent fighting God's will for his life, the year he spent fighting being reconciled to God, he was miserable. His bones waxed old from the roaring. He was so distraught, so riddled with guilt that his bones were sore from the trembling he must have done in the night, from the distress that he was putting his body through. Have we ever been so troubled that our, at our sin that it caused emotional distress to our body? The shaky uneasiness of knowing that we had committed a sin before an almighty God. Maybe we would be more broken up when we sin if we could somehow make more real for us the picture of what Christ suffered for us to free us and pardon us from our sins. 
you know, a kind of picture altering and, and life altering movie for me was an older movie about Christ's crucifixion called The Passion of the Christ. And while it does hold some skewed Catholic inaccuracies in the retelling of the historical facts, it's a visceral depiction of the suffering Christ endured in his last hours leading up to his death. And yet for all the brutality depicted in this movie, the Bible says that he was unrecognizable as a man. Now, I remember watching as the flesh was torn from his body with the cat of nine tails and the beating that he endured at the hands of the soldiers in the crowd. But through it all, in this depiction, you could still make out his facial features, his eyes, his mouth, and his nose. But he was unrecognizable. His body so ravaged by the brutality of it all and swollen beyond recognition that had he not been escorted and heralded by the crowds as they mocked him, you wouldn't have been able to tell who he was. And I'll admit, I I cried multiple times in the movie. If you've seen it, I'm sure you did too. But stop and think that this was only a Hollywood depiction of the horror our Savior endured for us. And then stop and think that we deserve so much more. See, he had to suffer and die for us, and he conquered hell when his lips spoke, it is finished. But for us, hell would have been our eternity. He bore and paid our sin debt with his death, forever freeing those that would accept his sacrifice from death and hell paid in full. And David was distraught. He was physically affected by his spiritual sickness. But in verse 5, he gives the remedy. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. If we confess or acknowledge our sins... How successful do we think we've been this year at hiding any of our transgressions from God? What sin have we failed to acknowledge before him? What distress is it causing in our lives? Now, as I studied for this episode, I, I read a great quote um, for, about hiding sin in Warren Wearsby's book on this passage. It's a quote from another Bible scholar. Uh, I'll use it here just because I, I love it so much. The quote is from John Donne. Sin is a serpent, and he that covers it doth but keep it warm, that it may sting more fiercely, and disperse the venom of sin and malignity thereof the more effectively. I think this is a great depiction of Numbers 32.23b, where it says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin doesn't sit in a corner of our soul and just stay there. If we invite it into the house of our heart, our spirit, it will not be satisfied in remaining in the dark room we close it in. Like the obnoxious house guests that can't fathom the condition of their temporary residence, sin will move from the room you've assigned to it, the one area of your life you've decided to allow it to go unacknowledged, the one room you want to hide from God, into the next room, and then the next. It'll continue to move from your thoughts no one can see those after all, 
to your words. And from there, it's a short leap to your planning for when you're going to sin until you begin planning for the next time you're going to sin. And it'll take over every closet, every cupboard of your life until it's choked out your direct line to the Father, until your relationship with Him is so broken, you'd almost rather sit in the house you've let sin take over than crawl humbly back to the only one who doesn't want to corrupt and destroy your house, but wants to build it. We can't hide. We can't keep it silent. It will rear its ugly head and it will come out. And even in the depths of the decrepit house, we can but call out one name, Father. And he's right there. We may have pushed him out the door, but he never went anywhere. Two more words restore the fellowship as if nothing ever happened. He's already placed that sin as far as the east is from the west. Acknowledgement is the only way to restore the fellowship we long for, the complete vulnerability of being in the loving embrace of our relationship with our Father in heaven. Two more words. Forgive me. And once acknowledged, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Silah. David says, everyone who knows you has this kind of access to you, Lord. Everyone who knows you can pray for forgiveness and receive it. Where is God in our brokenness? He's three words away. Father, forgive me. And in a moment, the wall that we've built vanishes at the touch of our heavenly father who comes running to us through the broken streets of the village. He didn't forget for a second. We've been on his mind the entire time. You know, as we read through the Bible, it can sometimes feel like God puts focus on one story at a time. But it's when we realize chronologically that many of the stories told are concurrent, that so many of the prophets were contemporaries of each other, that we see that God does not work on one life or one people at a time. He works on all people at all times. He works on every individual simultaneously. And this is how he works in your life and mine without ever dividing his attention. We can't begin to fathom that kind of capacity, but it's real. You and I, every born-again believer and every sin-tossed unbeliever, all have God's undivided attention. We are always on his mind. And when we sin, when we fail, and when the sinner continues to reject him, his love does not falter. His gift of salvation is not withdrawn. His forgiveness, once requested, is given liberally and absolutely, erasing any traces that what has been forgiven was ever even there. And it also covers any instances of what has been forgiven for the future. The floods of God's wrath never to be felt by the one who has experienced his forgiveness. The chastening love of a father, yes, but the wrath of a righteous judge never to be felt by those who have called upon his name. 
And in this, he becomes our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble. Can we never then be affected by the scars of sin again? Well, we can step out of the hiding place. We can leave the shelter. And when we do, we open ourselves up to the barrage, the onslaught of sin that digs into our vulnerabilities and exploits our doubts and desires. When we step out of his protection and allow our hearts to define what is good, instead of thoughtfully dwelling on the goodness of God, we throw down the armor he's equipped us with and make ourselves an easy target for the entity. But to be back in his protection again, we can return with, Father, forgive me. And there we can sing over and over again songs of deliverance, just like this song, written to be sung in the congregation as David, even before the people in the temple, admits his folly and gives God glory for his grace and absolute forgiveness. In verse 8 and 9, we read the account of God's response to David's praise, his promise to David's repentant heart. How will David keep from these sins again? How will he know how to navigate and recognize when he sees a sin beckoning to him from another balcony? God says, I will instruct you and teach you how to think, how to guard yourself from these things and other sins just like them. I'll show them to you the way I see them if you follow what I teach. Paul, I would argue an unmatched intellect in his time, was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He references the Psalms in in most of his writings and multiple times. To couple the truth of the saving grace of God with what he knew of the Old Testament, I mean, it must have been a constant revelation to him as he married the truths of Christ with his vast knowledge of the law and the prophets. He well captures God's recorded instruction here in the Psalms in 2 Timothy 3.16 when the Holy Spirit inspires him to write, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or mature, truly furnished unto all good works. Why do we struggle at times to see the sin so clearly in front of us, to recognize the sin that's eating at our lives? God continues in verse 9, listen, don't be stubborn like the horse or the mule that don't understand good instruction and have to be bridled so that they can be forcibly trained and guided to do as one would command them. But yet, don't we expect that? Well, God isn't stopping me from doing this. We say in our hearts when we commit a sin with a quick glance upward. So we shrug our shoulders and continue toward the sin. And what does that say of our love for him? What does that say of his love for us? Do we want him to pounce down and smack our hands every time we pick up our phone to look at or listen to what we know we shouldn't? He's given us plenty of instruction on what obedience and disobedience to him looks like. Literal books and books and pages of instruction on what is good for us, what he has promised us, what he has provided for us, the promised liberties we have in him to operate within his will. 
Yet like animals, sometimes we look and see that we have no bridle and we wander out the gate of the pasture that he left open because he won't force us to stay in his pasture, but he will protect us there. He will bless us there. And I'll admit it, it'd be much easier if we were bridled. If every time we veered towards sin, we felt our head jerked back and the bite of a hard, unmoving object in our mouth inflict the pain that was for our benefit, it was a protecting pain, an instructive pain. It would be easier. But that's not how God wants us to love because that's not how he loves us. He didn't have to love us because he created us. He chose to love us and then created us. He chose a redemption plan and then created us, knowing that we would fail, knowing that we would sin. He chose to love us despite the seeming irrationality of how we perceive love. Because he chose to love us, he allows us the freedom to choose to love him. And he's given instruction on how to receive forgiveness and once forgiven, how to show our love to him. John 14, 12 through 15 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, Jesus talking, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, he further goes on to describe the love and how we can show it. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. He continues from verse 9 into 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he explains why what the reward is for keeping his commandments and abiding in his love. These things have I spoken unto you in verse 11, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And this is why we see David say thousands of years before verse 10, that the wicked will know many sorrows. The wicked will never know the joy of redemption, the joy of choosing to love God with a fraction of the love he chooses to show us. In our trust and faith in him, his mercy compasses us about. And in, in our trust and faith in him alone, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and we can be called righteous. And being called righteous, we can rejoice. In keeping his commandments, we can abide, we can live, be wrapped in, dwell inside of his love. His love is the only place where we can find real joy, full joy. David had come to a realization before this psalm that his temporary joy, the fleshly joy in the moment of his sin, was not full joy. It wasn't real, tangible joy. It was a joy that was fleeting, incomplete. But as he pins this psalm of praise, he's reminded of the joy he found in surrender to the Father, that sin he had tried to hide. 
In the acknowledgement of his sin and how egregious it was before an almighty God, he found freedom to once again be close in fellowship with our God as God drew him close and forgave him instantly, restoring him immediately. And as we head into the new year, maybe there's something in your life that you've been holding on to. Maybe you've had a year of hiding, a year of turmoil. Forgiveness is instant and restoration immediate. It takes three words to know again the joy you've been missing. Father, forgive me. And maybe as we head into the new year, you can't place your finger on a lingering sin. You just know that you want to get to know our Heavenly Father better. Read the scripture, but more than that, study the scripture. His word is full of promises that we may not have discovered yet. And in the reading of these unfolding and timeless promises, we'll find more opportunities to praise him and find joy in the knowledge of the kind of love that he has toward us. Maybe, just maybe you're out there and you don't know the Father. You've never been introduced. You've never had the opportunity to start a relationship with him. Well, there's no time like right now. Whether it's the new year or the old year, when you listen to this, I'm telling you the time to meet him is now. The time for forgiveness is now. You can never know him following your way, trying to live a life that pleases only you, or even trying to live a life that you think might please him. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. The first step to obedience is simply acknowledging, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can never be eternally with you in my sinful state. Lord, I believe that your son died and bought a pardon for my sin. I believe that he died to save me. Forgive me of my sins and save me so that I can have a forever relationship with you. Saint or sinner, forgiveness is instant and restoration immediate. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Hey, thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week? And we'll walk just a little further. If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.